All right, cool. Let's get into the book of Revelation now. We are in chapter 19 again this week, Revelation chapter 19. And our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon. We want to let them know that we love them and we're one church with them. Ventura, we all know that you laugh at my beard on the big screen. We've been talking about it here. And we're slightly offended by that. Just kidding. We don't care. Okay, Revelation chapter 19. The title of this message is The Glorious Return of the King of Kings. We are getting to the good stuff in the book of Revelation, the glorious return of the King of Kings. We've covered the first half of Revelation 19 last week, so we'll be looking at the second half, verses 11 through 21. You might also put a finger in Luke chapter 4, just to save some time, we'll be turning there in just a few moments, Luke chapter 4. But right now we'll read starting in Revelation 19 verse 11. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which nobody knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him also on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, your word before us today is both wonderful and rattling, glorious and startling, beautiful and gory, all at the same time. And we ask that you would simply give us understanding of your word and help us to think rightly and live rightly in light of it. We're told in your word today that you are returning. Thank you, Jesus. And that you will deal with sin and rebellion and wickedness and the schemes of the enemy. Thank you, Jesus. We ask that these things would create in us hope, joy, and obedience in our Christian lives. And in light of your return and your soon renewal of all things, that we would live for ultimate things, for eternal things, that we would live Christ for you. So help us to get these things from your word. Please help me, God, to communicate in a way that's faithful, helpful to my dear brothers and sisters here whom I love. Please anoint me for that. And please open our hearts and our ears to hear and ready our feet to obey Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask this in that wonderful name. Amen. 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 Well, as you could probably discern, this is the central vision 
of the book of Revelation. We've been in it now since September, quite a while, several months, and 19 chapters, and this is a crescendo. This is the central vision. This is the main moment, really, in the book of Revelation. This is what it's all been building toward, and this is this moment the glorious return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This moment is what the church has been longing for for 2,000 years. This has been the enduring hope, the steadfast desire, the motivating longing of God's people throughout the ages, the return of Jesus Christ. And John gets to see it here. It's prophetic. He's he's seeing into the future here. And he says in verse 11, and I saw heaven opened. This is sort of a a new magnitude of vision here. In chapter four, he saw a door open in heaven and he was invited up. But this is a whole new magnitude. He's seen the marriage supper of the lamb taking place, but now all of heaven is flung open. He sees a white horse. Cavallo Blanco, as we say in Carpinteria. And there's no mystery to the imagery. In his culture then, a, a white horse was a picture of victory. All the Roman generals would have come down the streets after great battles, riding on big white horses. Sometimes whole armies that were meant for victory were put on white horses. He sees the heavens open and he sees this white horse and all the attention is brought to the one who is sitting on the white horse. And it says that the one who is sitting on the horse is called faithful and true. Who is it? We know who it is. The only faithful and true one. But the idea of him being called faithful and true is that he is the one who is bringing about all the covenantal promises of God. All the yearnings and expectations of God in accordance of God's people in accordance with the promises of God. Christ is bringing them to pass now in his bodily return to earth. Therefore, he's faithful. Not a word will fail. He's true. All the promises are coming to pass in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's good. It's a white horse. It's victory. The one upon it is faithful and true. But it's also hard. It says in the end of verse 11, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And as we know, that is a definite part of the period of time leading up to the return of Christ and of the return of Christ. Judgment. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ and it involves judgment. It is of an entirely different nature than the first coming of Jesus Christ. It's important that we realize, Christians, that both comings of Jesus Christ make up an understanding of Orthodox Christianity. To be a Christian is to believe many things, but it is also to believe that Christ came and that Christ is coming. You don't have Christianity without the hope of the second coming. It's not a tertiary or secondary doctrine. It's a primary doctrine of the Christian faith because in it, redemption is fully and finally accomplished. Without the second coming, we don't have the full story. We don't have the answer to evil, the dealing with evil, the judgment of sin, the promised renewal of all things, the ultimate redemption of our bodies. All of these things are wrapped up in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So to be a Christian is to believe that Christ came, but Christ is coming. And the comings were of two different natures. The first coming was somewhat veiled. There weren't many people there. It was in a cave in Bethlehem and there was... Mary and Joseph and a few animals was veiled, humble beginnings. And he came and he was rejected and he suffered and he was crucified. He came the first time to atone for sins expressly and not to judge. The first coming was as a sacrifice for sins. Recall the words of Christ in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Note verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The first coming of Jesus Christ had to do with the atonement for our sins, the cross. He didn't come to judge. But the second coming of Jesus Christ has to do with judgment. He is coming to judge. The first one was in humility with suffering and it was veiled. The second one will be public, worldwide, glorious and be held by all. Recall the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 24. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be, coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, set in juxtaposition to his first coming in humility, veiled, suffering. Second coming has to do with judgment, It's worldwide. Everyone's going to know what's going on. It's not going to be just a few wise men showing up. Power and glory is what's pictured here with the white horse imagery. And the day of judgment has arrived in the coming of Christ. Look what Paul said about this in Acts 17. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, speaking of Christ, the God-man, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through Christ who is also the savior of the world, who gave his life upon the cross because Christ is the one who brought God's mercy to the world. Christ is also the one who brings God's judgment to the world. He is in himself the righteous judge. It says at the end of verse 11, in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And the war is against sin. The war is against wickedness and its perpetuators. Verse 12 continues to describe this judge in his glory. It says, and his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. We've seen Jesus pictured like this before. In chapter one, we had that heavenly vision of Christ and his his eyes were like fire and that's sort of multitudinous in its imagery. Fire in the Bible is always speaking of judgment. Daniel chapter seven, we see fire coming from the throne in that moment of judgment. It also speaks of purity refined by fire. It also speaks of the penetrating nature of Christ and what he sees. All these things, no no eye can escape from the eye of Christ. No, excuse me, person can escape from the eye of Christ when he comes to judge. It's holy and it's pure. It's the judgment of God pictured in the eyes of Christ. And upon him, he wore many diadems. What's a diadem? We never use that word. It's a crown. Upon him were many crowns, royal diadems. It was common in ancient cultures that kings who were kings over other kingdoms would wear many crowns. And that was a common reality. Rome conquered many other kingdoms. At one time, the king of Persia was a king over 125 different kingdoms. And sometimes when a kingdom would go and conquer another kingdom, that king would take the crown off the conquered king's head and put it on his own and add to the stack. And we have statues that we found from the time of the apostle John, statues of kings who had written upon their thighs, king of kings is a common claim of some of the greatest rulers in the world. Jesus comes as a ruler of them all. Upon his head are many diadems, meaning he is the king over all things. His sovereignty is unlimited. He's crowned with many crowns in his second coming. 
In the first coming, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. Now he has many royal diadems upon his head. Philippians speaks of this progression. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Speaking of Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's in view in the second coming. But you see how it follows on the heels of the first coming. The crown of thorns precedes the crowns of glory. What a glorious God that he loves us so much that he gave his son to suffer for the sins of the world long before he ever sent him to judge the sins of the world. The kindness of God. And this is the economy of God. And this becomes the call of God on God's people. You see, we're so formed by our culture, we're always looking to stack up the crowns. What crowns can I add on my own head? What crown of reputation? What crown of possession? What crown of achievement? What crown of recognition? What crown of... But Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me or woman, let him pick up the cross, deny themselves and follow after me. The cross always precedes the glory. The way to glory in the economy of God is self-surrender at the cross. We are so trained by our culture and our world and media to exalt self, but Christ our King humbled himself to the point of dying on a cross. And later, now he's crowned with many crowns. There's also a crown in our destiny. We'll get there in a moment. It says also then that he has a name written upon himself which no one knows except himself. I love little mysteries like that. (laughs) Maybe when we get to heaven and we see him in glory, we'll get to know, I don't know. He's got a name written upon himself which no one knows but himself. What does that mean? What is a mysterious name? I don't know. Nobody knows but him. Mystery. Christ beyond comprehension. I assume that there is a quality. I know that there's a quality and an essence to Christ that escapes human language. It's beyond our comprehension that we will forever in glory with him be discovering his worth. Maybe it means something like that. Verse 13. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Dipped in blood. That, That cues us off. This is not atonement blood. This is not his blood. This is not first coming stuff. This is second coming. This is the blood of his enemies. This is war language. This is God dealing with wickedness language. This is stark, gory judgment language. He's got a robe dipped in blood. He's riding victoriously over his enemies. His name is the word of God. We're we're familiar with this, with this imagery, right? John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Speaking of Jesus. John 1.14, no one has ever seen the father But the only begotten God, the Son, has revealed, or in the Greek, exegeted him to us. Christ is called the Word of God because he is the one who explains God to us. Look what Hebrews says about Jesus. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. 
When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Notice what it says, that in the past, God spoke to humanity and his people in all sorts of different ways. But Jesus is the full and final revelation of God and from God. Jesus is a full and final revelation. Anything we need to know about God, we find in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It says he is a radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. We need look no further than Christ. He is the word, the explanation, the exegesis, the unfolding, the explaining of God to humanity. That is why, men and women, we talk about Jesus. There's nothing else to talk about. When push comes to shove, when the main thing needs to be the main thing, it's always Jesus, the full and final revelation of God. Are you giving yourselves to knowing more of Jesus? If what the scriptures say is true about Jesus, then the greatest pursuit of your life can be knowing him, knowing him more, more intimacy, more understanding, more worship, more surrender to him. There are many things in my life that I regret. I will never regret following, pursuing, and obeying Jesus. That's what we give ourselves to. This is the king coming in all of his glory. Verse 14 is fun for us. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. <laughs> now, who are these armies? Come on, it's not that hard. That's us. We'll take a little clue from last week, a little sneaky sneak back to verse 8. When it's speaking about the bride, the church, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. These armies in heaven are us. Jesus is coming back in glory on Cavallo Blanco and we're coming with him on little white horses. It doesn't say little, but I just imagine that his is probably bigger than ours. Maybe ponies. This is rich and wonderful imagery. But the idea is this, that when Christ is in glory, we, his people, are with him. The imagery is this, is that when the line is being drawn in the sand, on the day of days, we are sighted with Christ. The imagery is this, The victory that he has won is also our victory as we are in him. The imagery is this, that as Christ has come to conquer, we are also overwhelmingly conquerors through Christ who saved us. We are on his side. We are sided with his cause. We are dressed in fine linens, white and clean, which are the righteous acts of the saints as we spoke of last week. Imputed righteous, positional righteousness, practical righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. The imagery is this, that we are under the rule and the authority of Jesus. We ride with him. We're his people. Don't put this off to some future date. Christian, the imagery is this. This is our identity. We ride with Jesus. We side with righteousness. To put it profanely, we are on the winning team. This is our identity. And we must remember, we were sinners saved by grace. We are undeserving, fully deserving ourselves of God's judgment and God's wrath and God's condemnation. But because of Christ's work upon the cross and having placed our faith in him, we have been saved, delivered from the domain of darkness, which is being judged here in the text. 
and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. And we ride with Jesus, the undeserving, unworthy army. We don't even have weapons. We just have little robes. We're not doing anything. We're just there with him. Isn't that good enough? The victory is his. The work is his. There we are on the day of days with him. We don't have any weapons. We don't have any armor. But we do have righteousness. Don't let this text be far from you. This is who we're meant to be. Clothed in righteousness as Christ's people. Christ does have a weapon at his disposal. Verse 14, 15, excuse me. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he might smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads a winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So from his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is imagery, of course. It's not really going to be a sword hanging out of Christ's mouth. That would be weird. This is imagery that speaks of what? The word of God speaks of his truth. I want you to notice that we ultimately have the same weapon, right? Ephesians chapter six, that we have the sword of the spirit, the Christian does. That the way by which Christ ultimately wins on this day of days is the way that we win every day. In our little battles, in a little Armageddon's, in our little confrontations with wickedness in ourselves and in others and in the world. The sword of the spirit, the word of God. Christian, are you giving yourself to the word of God? We spend a lot of times with a lot of stuff that will come to nothing. The word of God will always count for something in our lives. This is a way that Christ gets the victory on this day. This is telling us that truth prevails. You know, our nation is hanging in the balance all sorts of different battles right now. And the Supreme Court is endeavoring to decide for a whole nation. And so perhaps, by way of influence, a whole world. What truth will look like. The word of God is truth. Jesus is truth. In the end, the text is telling us truth wins. We need not fear untruth. We need not fear the lies. We need not fear the unfaithful redefinings happening in our culture. God's word is true. The text is telling us that in the end, truth wins wins. Give yourselves to the truth. Think on what is true, Philippians 4 would tell us. Act according to what is true. Commit yourselves to being truth tellers and sayers in our culture. You know what this imagery is that we're coming with Jesus? As he's coming to win with righteousness and truth and we're on his side, that at least means that we are those who are willing to stand for righteousness and truth. He's not coming to a party, he's coming to conflict. He's coming to face opposition. He's coming to face the beast and the false prophet who deceive the whole world with their lies. And we are very much in the midst of that sort of thing. And the call on us is to stand for truth and righteousness on the word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ because we ride with him. And what's amazing to me is that there is no actual battle. It's set up like it's going to be this big battle, but Jesus just 
wins. <laughs> he just wins. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came out of his mouth, the one who sat upon the horse. He just wins with truth. It's not always a battle that it appears to be. Jesus just wins with truth. Truth wins in the end. The word of God will never fail. He just wins with truth. Stand firm on the truth of the word of God. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's coming in like a boxer. He's got a robe. He's got his name on the robe, name on the shorts, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, there are a lot of people in that culture, as I already spoke to, that claim to be a king of kings. He goes further, I'm the king of kings, I'm the Lord of lords, the ultimate ruler of all. It's interesting. If you look at this text in the Greek, it's the only place in the New Testament where we see it all in caps, in capitals, excuse me, in every single man- manuscript and text that we have, every one of them says king of kings, Lord of lords in huge capital letters. You know, when we're writing an email and we really want to emphasize the main point, right? We hit the cap lock. And how creepy is it when you get an email that's all in caps? (laughs) Don't even read them. I don't read them. You send me all caps, delete. There's something wrong with all caps. But when you put your main point in all caps, we all get it. Like, oh, capital right there. I get that. Do you get this? Jesus is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what his second coming will ultimately show and prove and display. He was a king over Rome that threatened John and his audience then. He's a king over every kingdom that has ever been or will be. He's the Lord over all of our courts, all of our governments, all of our warring and wrangling. Jesus is supreme. I'm reminded of John, excuse me, Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is a true God. He is a living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Verse 17 makes that clear. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. That's some stark imagery there. In ancient cultures, when people were going to war, the worst fear of a warrior was that he would be killed and then left on the battlefield to be eaten by birds and dogs. That that was the fear. That was the ultimate dishonor. Someone was killed in battle, you, you honored them by burying them. To be just left on the battlefield was the ultimate display of defeat, the ultimate show of shame. The imagery here, is that these will be left on the battlefield, so to speak. That, that sin, its perpetrators, its, its subscribers, ultimate wickedness under the leadership of the enemy is dealt with and shamed and thoroughly defeated. A sobering invitation from the angel. This stands in stark contrast to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the supper of God where the birds come and feast on the flesh of his enemies and stark contrast to the marriage supper of the lamb where there was rejoicing and choruses in heaven singing hallelujah. This is gory imagery. And it is, I think, imagery. The descriptions are descriptions of the symbol, not of a real occurrence. There is some real occurrence 
There's some real way in which God is defeating evil here. There's some real battle. There's some real victory. But this is imagery meant to rattle us, show us the ultimate shame and defeat of wickedness and the ultimate glory of Christ, the King of Kings. That we might say to the whole world, there is truth and there is error. There's black and white. There is good and evil. Choose Christ that you may live. And that we might, in our own daily battles, say to ourselves, there's a right and there's a wrong. And the way of sin is a way of shame and defeat and destruction in our own lives and in our relationships. So choose to follow Jesus. We ride with him. We are those who are participants in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not this sad supper of God. The meaning is clear. All that have set themselves to do and perpetuate evil and have forsaken Christ and war against him will be destroyed. This is hope, but this is hard. And we sometimes, along with our world, want God to be soft. We have to remember that God is not soft. Another key tenet of the historic Christian faith is the doctrine of the wrath of God. We have no understanding of God without understanding that God truly has wrath. Yes, he's a God of love. Yes, he's a God of mercy. Yes, he's a God of compassion and of grace. But he's also a God of truth, righteousness, justice, judgment, and wrath. Let us not, and let us not subscribe to culture's remaking of God in our own image. We are so soft on sin. Most soft on our own. God is not. Christ was crowned with thorns pressed into his skull to pay the price for our sins, that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is coming with royal crowns stacked upon his head to confront wickedness once and for all. We are those who are clothed in righteousness before him. And this is true opposition that these birds are feasting on. Remember their goal in chapter 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the lamb. The express goal at this point in history of these united forces in the world are against Jesus. What's in view here, what's in view in the text is the battle of Armageddon. Remember, it was introduced to us in chapter 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. This is a true worldwide amassing of people, forces, ideology, theologies, philosophies, values that are positioned expressly against Jesus. This is not so far from us. This is not only sometime in the future, though may it be soon and very soon. Don't we see a world that is aligning itself against Jesus? And isn't it expressly against Jesus? Just go into your classroom. Westmont, finals. No, not Westmont. It's not going to work there. You who go to UCSB, go into your class. That was so funny. You'll see why it's funny. Go to your class. Monday morning. Talk about any name that you want except for the name of Jesus. See? See how that didn't work for Westmont? (laughs) Wasn't a good illustration. You go into your workplace Monday morning. You talk about whatever you want 
Talk about pornography. Talk about adultery, the way you flirt with your coworkers. Talk about stealing from your employer. Talk about Islam, talk about Buddha, talk about Confucius. Talk about the New Age, talk about witchcraft. Talk about anything you want, you'll be fine. You talk about Jesus, you're going to have conflict. Right? Not me, I work at church. (laughs) But what the text tells us is that this is a trend which is trending. Hashtag against Christ. This is a trend that is trending. These are forces, ideologies, philosophies, ideas espoused, people, nations that are expressly against the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the battle of Armageddon. Verse 19 makes it clear, and I saw the beast, remember that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, he's in sway, he's got the whole world under his rule, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. It's not just about Jesus, it's about Christ's people. It'll start with Jesus, but it's always going to get to those who claim to be allegiant to him. This is no surprise to us. They're assembled to make war against him. This is not new. There's always been nations raging against God. You'll remember Psalm 2. Here's a portion of it. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Isn't that the cry of culture? Let's cast off these archaic values. Let's cast off these constraining truth claims. Let's cast off these old things and old ways. Let's cast off this narrow, divisive sort of thinking. Is it narrow? Is it divisive? You better believe it is. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. But the cry of culture is let's throw it off. It's too constraining. Let me be who I want to be. It's nothing new. Verse 10 of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, Supreme Court. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, speaking of Christ, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's, that's what's going on. And that's what's going on in an ultimate way in the text. It comes to a head at this thing called the Battle of Armageddon. Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo. Many of us have been there on our trips to Israel. I've stood in that valley before in Israel. I've been to Megiddo, the city there, the ancient city. I've seen this place. And at ancient Bible times, it was an important place, commercially, militarily. If you controlled that region, you controlled the trade from the north to south and east to west. And so because it was important militarily, strategically, fiscally, it became the scene of many battles, so much so that the Valley of Armageddon is sort of a, a, an overarching symbol for battle in the Bible. Lots of memorable battles unfolded there. The Lord routed Sisera before the armies of Deborah and Barak there. Gideon was victorious over the Midianites and the Amalekites there. King Saul and his army were defeated by the Philistines there in the Valley of Armageddon. King Josiah was slain in battle by the Egyptian army of Pharaoh Necho. So because of the long history of battle in this literal geographical location in Israel, it seems to have become symbolic of a battlefield in general between good and evil. But it might not be so symbolic. A literal interpretation sees real armies gathered in this place. That that makes sense in light of 
the whole book of Revelation. Now as the judgment is unfolding, everybody on earth knows from whom the judgment has come, right? They, they know, they, they've been declaring, hide us from the judgment of the Lamb. They know that God is judging the world and yet people still fuse, refuse to repent and they're giving their allegiance to Antichrist and it says expressly that they will endeavor to make war against Jesus Christ. So it's not beyond thought to say that they're gathering in one place together for this battle. If they were looking for one place in the world to gather, well, it would have been there because the scriptures are clear and everyone would be saying during that time, and it'd be no mystery that when Jesus returns, he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And the nearest place on the face of the earth where you could amass a huge number of armies coming against Jerusalem is the Valley of Armageddon. That's the nearest, largest open space. So it's not beyond possibility. This is real and literal battle that will take place. It also makes sense that it may be more figurative because of the way this is played out in Bible, all these different battles, that this is just a figurative way of talking about an ultimate conflict between good and evil, Christ and the Antichrist. And regardless of how literally or figuratively the passage is interpreted, it clearly describes a situation in the end where everything comes to a head and Jesus wins. There's the main point. It may unfold literal armies in the battlefield. It may unfold some different way, Christ winning. But the point is Jesus wins. Verse 20, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone. I don't know, people argue back and forth, but I think that's hell. It's not good. It's not a good place. In the next chapter, Satan will come face to face with that place at the hands of Christ. At the end of the next chapter, all those who have rejected Christ and the mercy and the grace of God in him will come face to face with that place. But the perpetuators, the propagators the leaders of evil and wickedness in the world, they're first. The Antichrist and the beast. This is an answer to God's people's ancient cry. The next verse, can't remember what it is. Boom. Look at, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles in the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. That was the ancient prayer of God's people. That is the current prayer of God's people. Christ, you've got to come and deal with the world. This is him doing that. And in the text now, we see that the beast has been defeated. The false prophet has been defeated. In the previous two chapters, we saw that Babylon is defeated. But their leader, remember the great red dragon, is yet to be dealt with. That's next week. What a cliffhanger. (laughs) But let me finish with this. For whom... For whom are you living? Christian, we ride with Jesus. We want to be able to say at the end. Just did a funeral this week for a dear, dear old saint from our church who went on into glory. And every time I do one of those, For a woman like that, I'm reminded of what I want to say at the end of my life 
like Paul said at the end of his in 2 Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. <laughs> Jesus has a big white horse. He's got many crowns. We have little ponies and one crown. <laughs> which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. All those who are his that are looking forward to and so living in light of the glorious coming of the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. May we live for him today. Thank you, God, for your word, your word to us. Thank you for the hope that it brings us. Thank you for the charge that it gives us to be men and women who preach your gospel, live for your purposes and pursue righteousness. Help us do these things with your Holy Spirit. Can't do any of it without the help of the Spirit. So Lord, that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we might be faithful witnesses of Jesus, who came, who died, who rose, and who is coming again. Help us to be faithful witnesses. Lord, help us in the little tiny battles of our daily lives to wield the sword, to cling to the truth, to choose righteousness. Thank you that you endured the cross, that you wore the crown of thorns, that we might be forgiven. And when we confess our sins to you, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for that glorious gospel and that hope. Help us to live with a wonderful urgency in these last days. Thank you that you're coming again. Communion is here. Paul said that every time we partake of communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes the forgiveness of sins until he comes to undo all of the results of sins. Prayer team is here if you need help with anything. This King of Kings is Lord of Lords. He's worthy of fervent worship, church. Fervent worship, church. He's worthy of all of our attention and our worship now. Let's give it to him.